We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for being here today. This is the uh, presentation and conversation on elevating summer learning, math and reading strategies that produce double-digit gains. You are here today because you want to discuss elevating summer learning strategies that produce double-digit math and reading gains, and we're really excited to engage in this conversation with you. To start, we'd love to get a sense of who's joining us in this virtual uh, virtual space this, this afternoon. So you're going to see our very first poll of the day. Please take a minute to answer the poll question. We can think of this as a warm-up. So please go ahead and tell us what is your current role so we can see who's in this space right now. Let's see. We've got teachers. We've got instructional coaches. We've got a number of district-level leaders. Uh, we've got some other who I assume are perhaps here from a state or federal agency or community-based organization. Wonderful. So whether you're joining us from a school or from a community-based organization or out-of-school time organization, thank you. Thank you for being here today. We need everyone in the room collaborating on how to improve the quality of summer learning programming. And so I'm going to start today by briefly introducing our fantastic and rock star panelists who are going to facilitate and guide this conversation. First, I want to introduce you to my colleague, Jackie Taslam. As co-president of Lavinia Group, Jackie leads and supports the development of instructional coaching, innovative professional development for school leaders and teachers, culturally relevant curriculum in literacy and math, and the design and implementation of Lavinia Group's summer learning program, RISE. Prior to joining Lavinia Group, Jackie was a school leader and superintendent in Harlem, New York. Thanks, Jackie, for being here with us. Our next panelist is Dr. Jack Smith, a dedicated lifelong educator for over 40 years. Dr. Jack Smith has been a teacher, principal, curriculum director, and superintendent of schools. He led as an administrator in Richland, Washington, before becoming an international school principal in Tokyo for six years. Returning to the U.S. in 1998, he contributed significantly to Calvert County Public Schools, progressing from principal to superintendent for seven years, earning Maryland Superintendent of the Year in 2013. As Maryland's chief academic officer, Dr. Smith collaborated with diverse stakeholders, ensuring top-tier education across public schools. His tenure as Montgomery County Superintendent for five years emphasized equitable access and elevated learning opportunities for all students. So Dr. Smith, thank you so much for being here today. We're really excited to hear your perspective on this topic. Finally, Dr. Barbara Jenkins served students for over 30 years, becoming Orange County Public Schools Superintendent in 2012 for 206,000 students before retiring in December 2022. So we have brought her out of retirement for this conversation. Her leadership secured the broad prize for urban education, Governor's Sterling Award, and District Accreditation from Advanced Ed. Under her leadership, her district achieved a remarkable 97% graduation rate during her tenure. Notable recognitions include Superintendent of the Year, a presidential appointment to the National Board of Education Sciences, and the Baldridge Foundation Award for Leadership Excellence. 
She shared the she chaired the Council of Great City Schools and actively engaged with various community boards, including Advent Health, Orlando Economic Partnership, United Arts of Central Florida, Central Florida Regional Commission on Homelessness, and the Orange County Youth Mental Health Commission. She currently leads the Women in Leadership Initiative for Chiefs for Change, consults with Southern Strategy Groups, and serves on the American College of Education Board in the EST. ETS board as audit chair. So thank you, thank you, Dr. Jenkins, for being here with us as well. And finally, my name is Julia Pakros, and I am the Director of Programming and Partnerships at the Lavinia Group. I've worked over the last three years to design and launch our national RISE summer school program, which currently serves 25,000 students in over 15 states. And so this is the team that's going to be guiding our discussion on summer learning today and we are excited to get started. So I want to begin today um, our conversation by really grounding in the reality of where we are. And I think these two quotes on our screen do a nice job of capturing the challenge of this moment in time. In the most recent report published by the NWEA this past July, examining the academic gains of six 0.7 million U.S. public school students in grades three through eight, researchers concluded that students will need the equivalent of 4.1 additional months of school in reading and 4.5 months in math to cover lost ground from the pandemic. The same study also found significant disparities between learning recovery rates in white, Hispanic, and Black students, indicating a widening achievement gap. And yet, at the same time, the clock is running down for state and district leaders to spend the unprecedented one-time $190 billion federal relief funds allocated to help schools recoup from pandemic-related setbacks. So in effect, this means leaders today, many of you on this call today, are striving to both achieve above-average growth for students while also facing fewer resources at your disposal. And so Dr. Jenkins and Dr. Smith, I want to start our conversation. Given this context, I'd love to hear how should leaders be thinking about summer school? Is it a priority for this upcoming summer? And how should leaders balance these competing interests? And either one of you can feel free to, to begin the conversation. I'm happy to, to at least start. I know Dr. Smith will have critical insight as well. I, I think summer school has to be a priority now more than ever. Uh, after the pandemic, where we know we have not regained uh, that unfinished learning, it has to be a priority. You cannot tack on the number of months missing uh, without having an efficient summer school program. And I want to be clear, we had summer school before ESSER, and so we still need to invest in summer school. We just need to make sure it's efficient, that there's fidelity involved and accountability, but I would make it a priority. There's no way to regain that lost time without a quality summer school program. Absolutely, Dr. Jenkins, that is spot on in my experience. And it's what the research is saying is it's going to take more time. And we've got to start thinking of time as variable and learning as constant. Learning has to be the priority and the time depends on what the student needs. It really does. And summer allows that. If you think about five weeks, three or four hours a day, if you do the math, that equals what was traditionally called a semester's worth of work. 
when the it was established back in the uh, late 18, early 1900s, that, you know, three hours a day for five weeks is is 75 hours. And we've we've got to think differently about this and use our time wisely. And as Dr. Jenkins said, we've been doing summer school a long time. It's not an excuse to not do summer school because ESSER funds are being uh, depleted and they will go away and they will. And we've all known they would go away, but we've got to do the right things, provide time, and we've got to do them right. We've got to follow the best research. You know, when I did my first summer school in the 1980s as an assistant principal, I didn't understand all the things we understand about summer school now. So we've got to use the information we have now, use the time we have now, use the resources we have now to meet the students that we have now in our classrooms. Great. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Jenkins, um, you know, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on um, how do you have a conversation like this, you know, with your team, right? So you're a superintendent of a major district and, you know, the person responsible for your budget is coming to you and saying, look, you know, here are the constraints this summer. I'm not sure that we can have a program, uh, you know, with the same resources and at the same scale as last summer. How, how do you respond to that? Well, as a CEO, you have a responsibility to take leadership. That, that's the bottom line. The buck stops with you. And so to the CFO and to anyone else on cabinet that has secondary thoughts about what can be trimmed off, summer school is just not an option. When we look at the data, when we look at the, the unfinished learning, when we look at the gaps that have been exacerbated by the pandemic, it has to be a priority. And superintendents just have to step out and take that initiative to say it is not an option that we won't do summer school. More importantly, we're going to do a quality summer school program that really makes a difference. We cannot afford to do summer school that's just playtime and fun. That's wasting resources and wasting the time of our children. It has to be an efficient summer school program. And my district, they always call me the data queen. Look at the data. That's how you make your decisions, not based on your gut, not based on your emotional feelings, but what is the data telling us? And then we have to move forward. And the, and the CEO has to take that initiative. I couldn't agree more, Julia. And I'll just say at this point, Please. if I had this conversation with my team, I would say just what Dr. Jenkins said. And then I would say to them, if not this, then what? Tell me mm. what you're going to do to meet the needs of these students now. And I don't think they would have other answers. Right. Right. So, um, the good news is that we know this this kind of growth over the summer is possible. Uh, and one of the reasons that we know this is that at Lavinia Group, we've worked with schools, districts, community-based organizations across the nation and have achieved significant gains throughout summer programming. So in fact, an independent study uh, led by the Indiana Department of Education showed that students who participated in one of our partner programs, Indie Summer Learning Labs, achieved statistically significant gains in learning above pre-pandemic rates of learning on their end-of-year state assessments, the iLearn. So in other words, students participating in the summer school program in Indianapolis grew at a faster rate of recovery than other students when, once they transitioned back to the school year. So this data really shows that summer programming can have a significant difference on student outcomes. And most importantly, the learning was not unique 
to just one subgroup. So the data, as you can see here on the screen, concluded that there, were con there was consistent growth across all student groups. So Black, Latino, and students who qualified for free or reduced lunch all saw gains at or above 20 percentage points in ELA and in math. And so as we've just heard from Dr. Jenkins and Dr. Smith and Jackie Taslam, our conversation today is really not about whether summer school is an effective is an effective learning recovery strategy. We know it is. The research tells us it is. That conversation, that door is closed. We know that schools should be using summer school. What we want to talk about today and discuss is how leaders can strategically use their resources to achieve this level of growth, the type of growth that Jackie's referencing right now in their summer school programs. And after studying and observing hundreds of programs like this one across the country, we've identified four key shifts that leaders should prioritize this summer to improve the quality and the outcomes of their summer school program. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. So let's get into it. Shift number one is transitioning from tips, tricks, and drills to transferable and conceptual teaching. The goal of any lesson is to ensure students understand the content and the skill, but more importantly, that they're prepared to apply what they've learned to all other texts or mathematical problems in the future. This means teaching tips, tricks, and drills are just short-term solutions. Students may get the right answer in that moment, but when it comes to being able to apply the learning at a later point in time, or even in the school year, the learning doesn't stick. And I wanna show you a study. There was a study at the University of Texas done in 2022 that analyzed more than 200 word problems from the park assessment and the smarter balanced math tests in elementary and middle school grades. And what they found was that using a keyword strategy, like teaching kids to hunt for words like less and more, would lead students to choose the right operation to solve the problem less than half the time for single-step problems and less than 10% of the time for multi-step problems. So not an effective strategy, yet this is the type of teaching we encounter all the time in year-round instruction and especially in summer. What we have seen is that programs that make this shift and prioritize conceptual teaching and critical thinking over the summer yield more immediate growth, and they see gains transfer back with students into the school year. So Dr. Smith, I'd love to hear some of the ways in your experience um, that you've moved leader and teacher practice towards conceptual and deeper thinking. And what suggestions or recommendations do you have for folks on the call today about how to make this shift and this transition for summer school? We, saw, we see so many examples of this Joy in our society now, and people blame it on technology, they blame it on schools, they blame it on all sorts of things, that we can't think critically, that we can't think deeply about concepts, that we can't come up, to co come up with complex solutions. And the fact is that skillful educators have been doing this forever, but not everyone can do it to the same degree in the same way. And so really the first thing we can do is model it as superintendents the way we conduct a meeting and ask questions. And as Dr. Jenkins said, look at the data, ask questions about it, challenge it, discuss it. Then we challenge our folks at the central office and our building leadership and our teacher leaders to do the same thing. We get models of this from teachers. You know, lots of teachers are able to do this, but they do it 
and they can't consciously tell you what they're doing. So we help them unpack it. We define it. We describe it. We give examples of it. We give non-examples of it. And we can create opportunities for people to think deeply about their instruction and about how to move to more conceptual and deeper thinking about language, about numbers, about concepts, if we really focus on that as our goal, rather than the goal just being the ability to recite the the times table. And, and that's not a bad thing. I don't want to sound like I'm saying don't learn the times table. Learn it so well that when you come up uh, to a tough problem, you can conceptually think about how to use that multiplication to help solve that problem, not just be able to recite it. And I, I think it absolutely requires us to focus on it and understand that's the end goal and be a yeah. model of it ourselves. Yeah, that's great. I, I love this piece. And I just want to you know stamp this piece around modeling it from um, a leadership level. Thanks for, for highlighting that. Um, Dr. Jenkins or, or Jackie, anything that you all would add based on your own experience about how we make this transition? Not much to add. I, I think Dr. Smith covered it. it. It's just critical to have teacher training because quite often there's a mindset in place about what children are capable of doing, yes. especially still students who are struggling or behind. There's this mindset that you may only need to do skill and drill uh, and that they can only do lower order questions and thinking. And we have to shift that mindset. It comes through training our teachers and modeling, as Dr. Smith said, uh, not just in summer school, but year round. There has to become a consistent practice, first nature, not second nature, of asking those probing questions that move students toward critical thinking. Great. Jackie, anything you want to add? No, nothing to add. Great. Okay. So that is our first shift. Our second shift that we're going to talk about today is adapting, uh, is moving from this place of move, uh, adapting year-round curriculum to investing in specialized summer school curriculum. But first, we're going to put out a poll because we'd love to see what most of you are currently using in your summer school programs. So you should see a poll on your screen that says, what curriculum do you currently have in place for your summer programming? Please take a minute to answer that for us. Hmm. Really interesting. Uh, looking at the percentages right now, the majority of people on the call have a dedicated summer curriculum, which is fantastic. But slightly below that, uh, we see that um, tied for second place is we do not have a summer curriculum in place and teachers source their own summer school materials. So let's talk about the importance of this. Jackie, I'm going to turn it over to you. Great. Thanks, Julia. So for impactful summer learning, we know, we know, we all know teachers need access to high quality instructional materials. And this is where a dedicated summer school curriculum becomes really essential. And the our research indicates that many schools you know, currently ask teachers to modify their regular year-round curriculum for summer use. And, you know, I can see how that might seem efficient, right? Teachers are already familiar with the material. However, based on what our observations in hundreds of schools in classrooms over the summer, as well as our analysis of the data, we've determined that this approach really has significant drawbacks. Often, the adapted curriculum doesn't focus on priority standards or respond to trends in student data. Or you might see teachers 
just teaching a unit that they, you know, didn't get to during the school year, but not a unit that is really intended for summer school. And so, um, you know, we, we've really seen in order to make a significant impact in a short amount of time, teachers and students need access to an evidence-based summer school curriculum. And so in this case, the curriculum should be designed to focus on key grade level standards and grade appropriate assignments. The curriculum should also include all the materials teachers need to implement it, high quality resources like detailed lesson plans, student materials, pacing guides, and assessments and rubrics. And therefore, teachers can really focus on how do they teach that lesson well, how do they internalize it and teach a really engaging, focused lesson, as opposed to spending all of their time creating materials, trying to identify what to teach. Um, and, and really, we found that this is much more effective. And, and, and you know, if you do want to develop your own curriculum in-house, we do recommend that the curriculum is developed by district curriculum experts over the course of several months to ensure it really fits the amount of instructional time available and aligns with the district school year standards. Uh, it's also important that it's flexible enough to meet the needs as identified for the students of the summer. So if you're going to create your own, we really suggest it's done at the central office level with plenty of expertise and time. Thank you, Jackie. And another critical component uh, that we're hearing more and more about, right, is this transition from remediation to acceleration. Um, and over the summer and out of school time, this is more important than ever. And so, Dr. Smith, I know this is something that, you know, you're deeply passionate about. I'd love to um, hear from you. Uh, can you kind of explain the research on this, right? What are we learning and what are the implications for summer school? There's some relatively new research that just came out in, in the last uh, year that I think is really exciting because it's showing more and more definitively that we cannot simply get into what I call the spin cycle. Well, these students don't understand second grade math. They finish third grade. They're moving into fourth grade. They finish fourth grade. We're going to keep teaching them just second grade math. First of all, as Barbara said a few minutes ago, those children are ready conceptually to t talk about and think about fourth grade material if they're moving into the fourth grade. We need to support them in that. Then we need to know specifically what it is about second grade math they're hung up on instead of just reteaching the whole thing. I literally remember as an, an, a principal who was new to a system that we had children in remedial math for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade where they covered the same material. We were able, when I became superintendent of that system, to stop doing that. And what we saw is that the baseline requirement in the ninth grade for ninth grade mathematics, the number of students who met that during seventh or eighth grade went up profoundly from 60% of those students who had been stuck in basic math to almost 90% of them started the ninth grade having met that baseline for high school math. That's the problem with remediation. It's the spin cycle forever on a washing machine. Right. And the research is clear. Conceptually, they're ready for it. And specifically, they need to know the parts they're missing that's stopping them from being fully successful in that grade. So at the end of third grade, if a student's struggling with fluency and still on the second grade level as a reader, as a fluent in fluency, as a fluent reader, 
Let's work on that fluency for part of that day, but let's introduce them and, and take them back to that end of third grade reading so they get the vocabulary, they get the conceptual ideas, they build that comprehension, and then that summer work on the fluency some more and begin to introduce them to fourth grade. We will be doing them a service that will help them for the rest of their life as opposed to keeping them stuck in, seventh, in second grade fluency until they meet some benchmark that we've discern, determined is necessary. The research is out there. It's a crime not to really research, understand it, and challenge people with it. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Smith. And I saw I saw a lot of uh, emoji responses on the screen with folks agreeing with you um, and appreciating you, you know, advocating for this. Um, love to hear, and I, I think Dr. Smith gave us some really good examples. Do you have any other concrete examples of what this looks like in the context of summer school, right? So in summer school in particular, we have students who are two or three years behind grade level. What does it look like to remain committed to acceleration strategies um, in summer school, even with kids who are two, two or three years behind? Julia, I can jump in. While we're, oh, Great, thank you. <laughs> let, let me just say, I wanted to stand and cheer for what Dr. Smith had to say. Oh my gosh, that, that is so critical. If we know the research is telling us that, then why don't we practice it? I used to tell my team, show me, because I'm going to need to be convinced. How do you catch a student up by slowing them down? Yes. There's no way. If they're in a race and you make them stand still or go back, and start over again or keep going back and retracing their steps, I don't know how you catch them up. And so this notion of acceleration is so critical. And summer school is a key time that we can actually do that. You can introduce on grade level standards and still prescriptively build in scaffolding where they may have some missing skills, but it can be done. Acceleration is critical rather than holding children still or making them go back and redo and redo and redo. That is no way to catch children up. And I have to tell you too, your uh, comment, Jackie's comment about uh, making sure there are um, uh, provisions made by the central office team, that is going to be critical as well. Teachers will not have the time nor the expertise to create it on their own. They have right. to have the assistance. Larger districts, you've got a central office curriculum team, they can get it done. Smaller districts, and in some instances, larger districts, quite frankly, using outside resources is going to be critical as well. The expertise is there. We just have to use it. Right, right. Absolutely. And, and to that point around um, needing support from a district office, implicit in what both of you are saying is really good data, right? We need to know um, not just that a student is reading on a second grade level, right, but specifically where their gaps are. Is it a you know phonological gap? Is it a vocabulary gap? We need to know precisely what students are um, struggling with so that we can continue to expose them to grade level content. And to your point, also, you know, provide those just-in-time scaffolds for the skills that they're missing. That's great. Okay. So um, moving in now, I want to transition, and Jackie, welcome back. Hopefully you can you can hear us now. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about because you know we've talked about um, this this uh, acceleration being a requirement of the curriculum. We've also talked about the need um, to really have a dedicated summer curriculum. Can you speak a little bit about the content, right? What should be the meat of our curriculum over the summer, starting with math, and then we'll transition to literacy? Great. Thank you, Julia. Uh, so based on our research, we found that there are three critical components to a math program in the summer. The first is word problems. So this is an opportunity for students to build grade mastery of grade level standards through complex problems and rich mathematical discourse. 
And the second is math routines. So building upon those word problems, giving students opportunities to engage in these routines to build their mathematical fluency and conceptual understanding through targeted discussion-based routines. And then the third is small group instruction. And, you know, as Dr. Smith mentioned, this is where you can personalize that support. The word problems are at the grade level, but the small group instruction might, you know, be targeted towards exactly what students need so they can access that whole class content. Great. Um, and then let's shift over to literacy for a minute now. On the literacy side, uh, we recommend three components all aligned to the current science of reading research, systematic phonics, close reading, and book studies. The systematic phonics is phonics routines block that focuses on relevant and multisensory routines. So we think it's really critical to focus on these concepts. And we also recommend uh, teaching concepts over the summer that can also carry into the school year. The second is close reading. Uh, and this is an opportunity to analyze short grade level texts uh, focused on main idea, craft and structure, and then an opportunity for students to analyze the texts and respond independently. Um, we also recommend there's a lot of writing built in throughout this close reading opportunity. And then the last is book studies, engaging children in really rich, complex texts to develop their th critical thinking skills. Uh, and this includes analyzing text, lots of discussion, and writing about what they're reading. And we think it's really important that these texts are highly engaging uh, and really draw students in over the summer. That is, um, that's great. And I'm really, really um, grateful that you brought up this piece around engagement, right? We know engagement is critical over the summer. Dr. Jenkins, I'd love to hear how you think about student engagement over the summer. Do we approach it in the same way that we have, you know, approach or think about student engagement during the school year? You know, what are the differences there and what should leaders be thinking about? I think it, it may mirror some of the issues we're having during the school year now, but I think we can also uh, prioritize what we're doing around student engagement for summer programs. There is research that says absenteeism since the pandemic is just at an all-time high. I mean, unbelievable numbers. I believe the last calculation said every day about 10% of students are absent. Something during the, the pandemic made everybody think, parents and children think, it wasn't so important to actually be in school. And so there are 10% missing on an average day. And I believe the numbers said one in five would be considered chronically absent. So if that's happening during the school year, surely you cannot expect this ultimate uh, um, perfect attendance for summer school when it, when it is very critical when we're trying to accelerate and regain that learning time. So I believe, number one, we have to have an engaging program that attracts those students and it doesn't feel like punishment. While their friends are in basketball camp and doing fun things, they get to go to summer school. If it feels like punishment, they're going to come up with every excuse. And again, parents seem to be more lax now about attendance in general. So it has to be engaging or the students simply will not come. They have proven that to us. They will not show up. I think it also, not only does it have to have the academic focus and be engaging, I think there can be enriching activities 
that are also considered fun. It doesn't have to be a boring program. The curriculum can be extremely engaging and entertaining while still having the academic focus. And then I would also uh, note that parent engagement is going to be critical as well. And bringing them in, showing them what's going on, asking them to do some support activities at home. If you don't get the parents engaged and convince them of how important summer school is, then you're fighting a losing battle. I, I, I would suggest um, compared to years past, you better have a super stellar summer school curriculum program to attract students and keep them coming because they've proven to us they will not come. Right. Right. Yeah. I think those are all really great um, pieces for us to consider, especially in the context of a curriculum. So some of the things that I heard you say are um, looking for opportunities for parent engagement, maybe hands-on student activities like project-based learning. Um, and then another really critical component is picking texts that kids really want to read, right? Or using realistic word problems, mathematical problems that students can relate to that feel applicable to their everyday lives. We have to be intentional in what we're putting in front of kids or kids will not want to learn. So I'm so grateful that you, you know, double down on that. Um, Dr. Smith. And Julia, I would, I would add one more thing. You, you yes. have to use of technology as well because our children mm -hmm. are digital natives. They're not going to come just for, I had one individual say they just need chalkboard and workbooks. That is not going to work. Yeah. And whoever, they don't, we don't even use chalkboards anymore. But to think that children who are digital natives who have technology all around them are going to stand for something that's as boring as a chalkboard and workbooks is just not realistic. We have to engage them in all the ways that you've mentioned. Yeah, that's a great one, too. Writing that down. Um, Dr. Smith, anything that you want to add to this piece around engagement? I just I think what uh, Dr. Jenkins said is so important about the engaging them with using the technology, the tools they know, you know, they know those tools and engaging them. And I also think we with older students, middle and high school, even upper elementary, we have to help them understand the why. And that really goes to what is it you want in your life? What lifestyle do you want and how do you expect to get there? And how can we help you get there? And with younger children, having those conversations with families, making, making the case with families about the benefit to the child so that when the child goes home, the parents are talking positively about it. They're engaging the child in what's happening. They're discussing it any way we can, not blaming parents, not accusing them, simply working closely with them to support whatever we can do. And then working with the older students directly. What do you want out of life and how can I help you get there? Hmm. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, connects pretty well to our, our last shift, or excuse me, our next shift, which is um, thinking about intentional teacher development. So let's, let's move on to this one now. The third shift that we're going to think about right now is moving from prep time um, to really intentional teacher development um, so that teachers can have the time and space to think about what the materials are putting in front of kids and have these important conversations with students. Um, around goal setting and around what they're going to get out of their summer school program. So research has shown that the single largest impact on student outcomes is the quality of teaching. And I'm pretty sure that everybody on this call knows that. And that in order to improve the quality of teaching, there must be ongoing and targeted professional development. And this is particularly true in supporting students who are behind grade level. It really requires a lot of skill for teachers to differentiate and scaffold appropriately in response to student needs. 
Yeah. So I want to talk about this one for a second, um, because, you know, in our experience supporting, you know, thousands of summer school programs, we so rarely see time set aside for really intentional teacher development. Um, And Dr. Smith, I wanted to kind of hear your initial thoughts and reflections on that. Why do you think this is, right? Why is it that we're not seeing teachers have the same level and focus of professional development over the summer as they receive during the school year? And what's the value in making that shift for the summer? Well, I think it goes back to much of what we've been talking about during this session. And that really is that summer school evolved. You know, it was a it was a one-off kind of thing. And and I won't include anyone in the conversation but myself. But when I started doing this work, you might get a grant a, a few weeks before uh, you know the summer began and you could suddenly put something together. Or you might call a school and say, look, we have $12,000 that we can give you to do a summer program for kids. And that's evolved over time. We know more now, we understand more. And that's, that's no indictment of the past. It's simply saying, learn from the past and use it for the future. And yeah. so... As we know more about it, we know that that comes together with lots of different research around curriculum, around culture, around remediation. It also comes together around teacher support and teacher learning. Teachers, principals, we all need to be experts, but you don't start your first year as an expert. No one does. I'm sorry to tell you this, but your doctor didn't start the first year as an expert. Everyone learns over time. And so giving specific, uh, effective, strong professional learning for summer school just makes sense if we're going to have truly expert teachers in everything we do. And I I love what the work that John Sevier out out of Boston has done around research for better teaching because he says we need expert teachers in every classroom, extra, expert leaders in every school building and every central office around teaching, learning, and the well-being of students. And so it just simply makes sense. Sure, give some planning time because that is part of summer, but make sure you're giving true adult learning based on research, based on science, based on effective practice, and helping people move through that career. Because even if you're an expert, if you stop learning, you'll stop being an expert. Mm. That's great. That's really great. Um, And now I'm sure the question that some people on this call are thinking that I'm going to ask Dr. Jenkins and put her on the spot on is, you know, if I'm sitting here and I'm a principal or I'm a superintendent and I've never had summer school, I've never had professional development over the summer, right? How do I make that shift this summer? How do I get my teachers invested in the why behind this? And how do I overcome barriers like, um, you know, structural barriers like you were just referencing, Dr. Smith, or even... um, uh, you know, thinking about like con- contractual barriers as well. How should I go about that, Dr. Jenkins? That, that's a great question. Let me just note as well, while Dr. Smith was talking, I made a note to check how many years of experience my doctor has because he made it very clear that that's something I should be aware of. Here, here are the facts. Here are the facts. We have incredible teachers. Anyone who enters the teaching profession, they enter it wanting to do a good job for children. They have a heart for our children. Incredible dedication. Fact is, they're underpaid and they're exhausted. And so I think two things can help leverage this notion of summer training, because most of our teachers have to have some kind of summer employment. I would advocate for, and we've done this successfully in the past, 
I would advocate for stipends for PD over the summer. So you're Mm -hmm. paying them to extend their learning and their preparation for their profession. Now, that training can be for anything that's during the school year, but it can also be directly tied to summer school because that's going to overflow into the school year as well, helping them hone their skills and expand their repertoire, if you will, uh, during the summer. You have to pay teachers. That means negotiating and working with teacher unions. Quite often, stipends uh, can get you to where you need to be because it's not actually salary that you have to negotiate. But if you can come up with stipends that are going to pay them as much or more than working in a local retail store for the summer, I believe our teachers would prefer to invest their time honing their skills as teachers. So working collaboratively with the union is strongly encouraged, but you've got to have some resource and and find some investors, sometimes philanthropic efforts, even in local communities to help bring those teachers in and pay them for their summer training as well. Yeah. Great. Um, Dr. Smith, anything else that you want to respond to? Uh, I would just say spot on, Dr. Jenkins, and I would say high quality, engaging, where they walk out and say, wow, that was worthwhile. I learned something. And always keep in mind and remind people, this is portable. I learned it while I was in New Jersey. I took it with me when I moved to New Mexico. I became Mm -hmm. the summer coordinator when I moved to Seattle because I had done this work and I became an expert in this field and in this uh, area of, of learning and teaching. Yes, that's so powerful. It's transferable. And you both have hit on this, right? It's not just about for the summer. It's practices they can take back into the school year. It's a good investment for leaders and it's a good investment for teachers for that purpose. Absolutely. So we've we've talked a little bit about the adaptive piece here. Um, I want to take a minute to to dig into the technical. Um, We all know, and we've just talked about the, the importance and the value add of professional development and how it can improve teacher practice. But the reality is that often professional development does not improve teacher practice. And so I do want to take a minute to have a conversation with you, Jack, your experience running summer programs um, and just running professional development so broadly, you know, for for the organization. What do you recommend in terms of the structure of professional development? How do we make it meaningful? How do we make it stick? Yeah, great question, Julia. Uh, so, so really, I think there are a few key components. So first, based on our experience, we have seen teachers improve most rapidly when they're engaging in professional development that is specific to their grade level and to their content area, and also led by a content, content expert. So all professional development is not created equal. We really have to think about what our teachers need over the summer and make it specific to what they are teaching and the students in front of them. Uh, So what this might look like, you know, when done well, is you see teachers coming together with a content expert to intellectually prepare for a lesson that's coming up. And again, because they already have a curriculum, this is not creating PowerPoint decks. This is not creating worksheets. This is not figuring out the activities. This is deeply studying the text that will be in front of students and debating the ideas. This is really understanding the math content and thinking about all the different ways students might solve that problem. So if they're engaging in that conversation and that real deep intellectual thinking, they will be much more prepared in front of their students. Uh, In addition to those intellectual preparation opportunities, we think that there's you know, incredible value in consistent student work and data analysis. 
all year long. We know that, but especially during the summer, because in the summer, students are there for a reason. We need to figure out what they need and use the data and student work to differentiate appropriately. And that is a skill we need to help our teachers build and to do that together during that professional development. I'm seeing a lot of emojis on that screen, Jackie. A lot of people agreeing with um, the structure and how to make that stick. That's great. Okay, it is time for our last shift, uh, which Jackie actually just started to address as well. Okay, so our fourth shift is transitioning from inconsistent data, or in some cases, no data, to systematic assessment practices over the summer. So we're going to share another poll with you now because we're curious to hear what your data practices look like over the summer. So the question on your screen is, how does your school, district, or organization use data to inform instruction over the summer? Please take a minute to answer that. Panelists, I hope you're looking at the data. It's really interesting. Give it about 30 more seconds. Right now, it looks like the majority of respondents um, are saying that individual teachers use end-of-year data to inform summer school instruction. Um, after that, that's 46% of people on the call. After that, it's 16%, so a significant drop. We're seeing that data practices vary across campus and classroom and their district. Um, some folks on the call, your district offers a pre- and post-assessment. Some, about 13%, there's no data practices in place that I'm aware of. But the overwhelming amount of people on this call um, have individual teachers use end-of-year data to inform summer instruction. All right. So research tells us, um, which is definitely relevant given the data that we just saw, right, given your responses, that most educators today still rely on tradition and rules of thumb rather than using evidence-based tools and methods to advance student achievement. And this is particularly true during summer learning. In our experience, summer school teachers are rarely provided with data collection and analysis tools. So Dr. Smith, I want to, uh, you know, we've talked about this a few times already, but I want you to kind of just be as explicit as you can. What are the implications of this over the summer? What's lost when we rely on instinct and outdated data to inform our summer program? Well, when we, we noticed that I think it was 45% of the folks used end-of-year information, so end-of-year uh, assessment results maybe from the state, final grades, all of that is necessary. It's not sufficient. And so when we enter into summer learning and we just look back at what happened in March or April, we're really flying blind at that point. We don't know what's happening with each student uh, as they move through the summer program. And so we don't know the impact of that. So we can't shift, we can't maintain, we can't keep doing it or stop doing it for our students. We also are spending money on this program and valuable resources, and we don't know the impact of the program when we don't mm -hmm. have evidence of learning or lack of learning as we go through. And so it's critically important not only to have that data from the end of the school year, but to have evidence all the way through the, the summer and then have information about the overall impact of that summer program after it's over to make good resource decisions and especially to make good decisions on behalf of the children we serve. Yeah. yeah. 
I've heard that piece from a lot of um, schools and organizations recently, Dr. Smith, especially as it pertains to um, ESSER funding, right? And being able to really account for all of the money that's been spent and invested in out-of-school time. So many different schools and organizations we're working with are saying to us, I have no proof, I have no evidence that all of my time, all of this investment has really paid off for kids. So Jackie, I'd love to um, hear from you on examples of what strong assessment and data monitoring practices look like in a summer school program? That's great. Thanks, Julia. Uh, so we, we really re recommend using these pre and post assessments to determine growth. And um, it, the pre-assessments in particular are valuable so teachers can identify the trends and, and pinpoint learning gaps with the students in their summer school group. And then the post assessments really help us determine progress. Um, in addition, the other piece that's really critical is we recommend identifying a, an artifact of learning from the curriculum to measure progress all throughout, you know, the four to five week summer school program. So it's not just an assessment at the beginning and then let's cross our fingers and hope that we made progress. We should really be monitoring that over the course of the program. So, Dr. Jenkins, I'm going to put you on the spot again, which has, you know, been my favorite activity of this webinar. Um, I want to hear if um, your district were building out summer assessment practices or data practices for the very first time. Where would you start in year one? What feels reasonable? So, I certainly don't claim to be a psychometrician. I know there has to be dependence on experts in those departments, larger districts have more resources, smaller districts have got to depend on some external resources, quite frankly. Uh, but I would say the pre and post test is the easiest way for a district to start their assessment because you understand quite often, as Dr. Smith mentioned, uh, summer school was uh, not really known for an accountability measure. And so to start out with, I would say a pre and post test and that pre-test has to be at the very beginning of summer school. It can't be after the first week. The pretest has to be at the start so that it's efficient, so that it's accurate. And then I want to see monitoring. We need to have some uh, um, uh, formative assessments as well on a weekly basis to make sure that we're staying on top of what the students should be learning. And then I want a post-test that's going to assess at the standard level whether or not we've accomplished some gains for those children. Individual skills, unbundling the standards at the skill level certainly is expected, but I wanna see on grade level, standard level uh, assessment for what the children are learning. And I think when you say that upfront, there is this notion of accountability and a seriousness for those who are doing the summer school instructing and for my administrators, usually assistant principals who are supervising that summer program Everyone's on the same page. They know what we're expecting. They know what we're going to measure at the end of the time that the students have been with us. And there are no secrets about accountability. Great. Great. And the other thing I just want to emphasize, too, is these pre and post assessments do not have to be exhausted assessments that, you know, that evaluate every single standard under the sun. Right. We know students have just finished end of year testing and, you know, from school round year round instruction. So it's OK for these to be shorter and more intentional assessments. They can still show us a lot about where students are. Absolutely. So we've made our way now through our four key shifts. Oops, excuse me. And I just want to. Um, Go back to these for just a second. Um, keep these in mind, okay? So as you begin the planning process, which hopefully all of you are doing right now, we recommend you keep these four shifts in mind for this upcoming summer. 
Even implementing one or two of these components can dramatically improve student outcomes. Another question that we often get that I want to uh, briefly address whole group is how long and how much instruction should students receive over the summer? Dr. Smith mentioned this briefly at the beginning of our time together today, uh, but what the research is showing is that students really need three hours of instruction each day for roughly five weeks. That's what um, the research is showing us over and over again. Um, heavier on the literacy side than the math side. So we're seeing that they need about 34 hours of literacy instruction and 25 hours of math, but that should really be the gold standard. That also gives you a lot of flexibility in thinking about, do I want to have a half day or do I want to have a full day and you know, front load instruction in the morning and bring in some amazing enrichment providers in the afternoon? There's lots of different ways that you can structure this. Um, and, and the last piece that I want to emphasize here as you're thinking about your calendar and your schedule is put engagement first, right? Think about what, how are students starting their day? How are they ending their day? How can we make this as, in, as enjoying, as enjoyful, excuse me, joyful and exciting for kids as possible? So I'm going to turn it over to Jackie now um, to briefly, briefly talk about our summer school program here at Lavinia Group. Great. Thank you, Julia. So it's really clear that everything we've discussed, these four shifts are not just abstract concepts, but really practical, critical tools for transforming learning experiences. Uh, and at Lavinia Group, we've developed this guidance based on our own experience partnering with schools, districts, education organizations across the country. Uh, Lavinia Group specializes in academic school improvement. And throughout the year, when we're not running summer school program, we provide our partners with high quality professional development and world-class content. We engage in this crucial work every single day across the year, which is why we really have our finger on the pulse of what students, teachers, and leaders need to run a high-impact summer school program. And because of that need that we've seen, that's why we decided to really codify our approach into a program called RISE Summer School. And when designing this program, we really set out to achieve four goals. Uh, and the first was really to maximize the number of students on grade level. Secondly, to ensure that students had access to high quality, culturally relevant curriculum over the summer. Third, to provide teachers and leaders with the tools and development structures they needed. And then finally, to train on these high leverage strategies that could go into the school year. Great. Um, and we'll we'll share all these slides with everybody after the call today, but we want to be mindful of time. Um, I just want to briefly raise up and show you our summer school data from uh, this past summer. So this past summer, we were able to provide programming to 25,000 students in 15 different states, and we saw really phenomenal growth across the program. <clears throat> we have at Lavinia Group our own pre and post assessments, as we've talked about on the call today, that allow us to really measure and evaluate the efficacy of our program. And so over this past summer, we saw a 17 percentage point increase in proficiency from the pre to the post assessment in ELA and an 18 percentage point increase in proficiency in math from the pre to the post assessment as well. Um, and what we do is we partner with schools and we provide schools with really everything they need to turnkey a high impact program. So this is for schools, districts, um, CBOs, out of school time organizations, really anybody looking to maximize summer school programming. 
We provide five weeks of literacy and math curriculum, student materials and teacher planning resources, pre and post assessments and data analysis tools, and finally, all of the professional development, both pre-program training as well as weekly professional development. So um, as we close out here today, as I mentioned, we're going to share all of our, all our slides with you. Um, we, we got lost in conversation because there was so much good stuff to discuss. Uh, I wanted to just leave you with two uh, pieces on your screen, two QR, QR codes that you can scan. One is going to take you to our impact report from summer 2023. And the other one is going to invite you to an upcoming discussion um, from leaders who ran our summer school program last year so that you can hear a lot more. We're also going to launch a final poll right now as well so that we can follow up with each of you if you have any questions um, about our program, about our services. I know many of you put questions in the Q&A and what we're going to do is follow up with you after the call. Thank you so much for putting your first name and last name in there so that we're able to do exactly that. Um, but we're going to go ahead and put that poll on your screen now. And please take a minute to tell us. Are you interested in learning more about our summer school program? Are you interested in learning more about our consulting services or PD offerings or curriculum or all of the above? Um, and as you complete that, we just wanted to say thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for taking time out of your afternoon. We know it's the middle of the, of the school day for many of you for engaging in this really important conversation. All of us have seen that it is possible to build strong, lasting summer school programs. Um, so, so know that it's possible. Know that we are here as a resource to help you do that in this upcoming summer. I want to thank our panelists, Dr. Smith, Dr. Jenkins, and Jackie Taslam for being with us today. Um, and again, all of this will be sent out to you after the session today, a recording, the webinar deck, um, as well as answers to those questions that you put into the Q&A. Thanks so much, everybody. We appreciate your time. Thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.